What a great prayer. Thank you for praying that with us. Now let's continue in praise as we learn more of our Lord and what He expects of us. Take your Bibles, please, and turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, and we'll be looking at verses 4 through 7. Philippians 4, verses 4 through 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. In light of the text, I feel like I need to make a confession. Not every week, but most weeks. In my notes, I write or draw a smiley face at the beginning of my sermon notes. Now, I know that sounds corny. Even with an iPad, there's an emoji there. (laughs) And the reason why I do it is because I know that if I don't remind myself to smile, (laughs) I won't. (laughs) I mean, sometimes I think that I have some kind of a problem. Like, I, I, like, something is psychologically wrong with me, because I've read the research. I think we all have. We all know, know, <laughs> that it takes 17 muscles uh, to smile and 43 muscles to frown. I mean, like, it's, it's by conventional wisdom, easier. It, you would think that the, the natural thing would be that the, the gravity would reverse and my face would lift upward, not downward, and yet it, it doesn't work that way. And, and frankly, friends, I did some research. I found out it's not true. (laughs) It's not true. So if you feel horrible about that, we're in the same boat. Because you don't have to feel that way anymore. I mean, statistically, scientifically, it has been proven that it is not actually, it doesn't actually take less muscles uh, to smile. It takes more. Cecil Adams did a study on this in 2004. He published it. And uh, he worked with a plastic surgeon, David Song, and they identified 12 principal muscles required for what's called a Duquesne smile. Now, a real smile. Like the smiles I used to do as a kid were like this in pictures. (laughs) A Duquesne smile is actually when you smile to the point that your eyes lift. Only 1% of people, from what I understand statistically, can even fake that. The way you can tell if somebody's really smiling is you can look at their eyes. And so, he calculated the muscle movements, and he actually says that of the 12, it only takes, interesting to this, uh, 11 to frown. 
and he estimated one to smile. <laughs> or excuse me, 12 principal muscles required for a Duquesne smile, uh, and 11 for a frown. So it's kind of even. 12 to smile, 11 to frown. Hey, but guess what? Statistically, the frown's easier. <laughs> We're in good company. But he maintained, and this is from a, a plastic surgeon, he says, uh, it does take less effort to smile since people tend to smile more often. The muscles could perform the action easier. So he just assumes that everybody smiles all the time and those muscles are worked out more and therefore it is still supposedly easier to smile. But nonetheless, I, I seem to think that it does take an odd amount of determination and intentionality to, as the old Dick Van Dyke song put it, put on a happy face. It just isn't like the default and, and, and natural disposition of most people for some reason or another. I'm not saying that everybody goes around scowling at one another, but it just seems to be a rather neutral look, not necessarily a delighted one. In fact, based on observations of outsiders, many would say that this grit required to grin is especially true of those who are in Christ. This has been a, a historical charge leveled against the church. I'll put it this way. If you look through centuries of church history, God's people have had what I would call a major PR problem. In our own day, Christians are viewed as that cantankerous lot that cannot accept the inevitability of progress. Come on, guys, just get along with the program. One popular 19th century journalist quipped that, Puritans in particular, and by extension, Christians in general, are those who are haunted by the fear that someone somewhere may be happy. <laughs> and of course, this quip isn't true of all Christians, we know that, but it does seem to be especially true of those who take their faith seriously. For so many, godliness means grim. Christ-likeness means killjoy. <laughs> and that's the popular view of Christianity. But let's turn this more personal. What is our PR status with the people around us? Forget the news, op-ed pieces written by liberals, but like the people in your sphere, the people around you, your, your family, uh, your friends, your co-workers. If, if I were to ask those who were closest to you to list the happiest people they knew, would you make the list? Is your life in these days, and I mean in these days, in these days of an inauguration, Is your life in these days more characterized by joy or sorrow? I didn't say exclusively joy or sorrow. I said, is it more characterized by joy or sorrow, peace or anxiety, ease or effort? And if it's not the former of those things, this is a real question, a very real question. Should it be? I don't want to just like assume from the very beginning that happiness automatically equals holiness. So I think that's a question that we need to ask. Is it okay for us to be down? 
Is it okay for us to be sad? Is it okay for us to wear the face neutral as opposed to the smile? As Paul brings this letter to a close, he's going to address this particular question straight on. I mean, straight on. He's he's basically answering, the question's never asked, but he's answering this question, what disposition should characterize the Christian? What disposition should characterize the Christian? Though he mentions joy ten other times in this letter, it's going to be in this particular place that he's going to hit it head on. He's going to cover those twin graces of gentleness and peace as well. But he's going to tackle not just his own story, but what ours should be in relation to these, what we would consider to be positive dispositions, if they should be ours or not. I think one of the things that you would would need to really understand to, to catch how Paul expects his readers to respond is, is this unique thing that Paul kind of does at the end of letters, and you've noticed it in somewhere like a First Thessalonians or even in the book of Romans, where he starts throwing out like a bunch of commands at the very end. Do you ever notice that? You read a letter of Paul, and it's like he's got this tight, logical argument. He starts off with indicatives. Uh, he ends with like broad imperatives that are tied closely to those. And then it's like as he brings the thing down to a close, you know he's going to mention some names of some people that he really likes, and he's going to throw in like five or six what seem to be random commands. The official term for this, and it, you can't even find it unless you have like a really fancy dictionary, is perinasis. Perinasis. It's a tool of rhetoric that when guys were speaking, they would normally at the end throw out things to their audience that everyone kind of like already knew, things that people already bought into, but they were really important and they needed to be reminded of. If I tried to give a modern example of how perinasis would work, it would be like um, a, a parent saying to a teenage kid before heading to a sleepover, like they're getting out of the car, right? Mind your manners, brush your teeth, uh, take a shower, clean up after yourself, and what does the teenager respond? I know, I know. (laughs) But we say it anyway because we think it's just that important. This is just the normal standard of behavior that's accepted of a teenager coming from one's house to another person's house, and so we're just going to throw out a few of the, the basics. Paul treats his churches the same way. There are several things that he just assumed because of his ministry to them that they already know. He doesn't have to make like a really strong argument for it, but he's just going to say, all right, guys, here's the list. Before I let you go, you need to remember, like in this case, make sure you're happy, make sure you're gentle, make sure that you're calm, make sure that you're thinking about the right things. And the natural response of the Christian is, I know, I know. (laughs) It's just expected. It doesn't need an extended argument because he's assuming it already to be true. So when we're asking ourselves the question, oh, what then should be the disposition of the Christian, and we pay attention to these particular verses, I want you to know that Paul's not going to like lay out a huge argument for you. He's just going to assume it to be true. But I know that we still have questions. I know that we still have questions because we think, Really? This is, I mean, really? We're just supposed to be happy all the time? We're supposed to not argue with anybody? We're supposed to just, like, take it easy? Something about this seems unrealistic. It seems unattainable. I wish Paul would have given some more details. 
We'll get to those details. We'll get to those objections. But what I want you to know is that indeed he does address the disposition of a Christian. And it is expected that Christians will be happy, gentle, and calm. It's as simple as I can say it. Paul is going to show us here that it is the normal expectation that a Christian would be happy, gentle, and calm. One more contextual note before we look at the three of these. Paul is not assuming pleasant circumstances. He's actually assuming the opposite. Think of his context for a moment. He is not writing beachside at the JW Marriott down in Marco Island. He is literally in prison, chained to a guard, awaiting sentence for a capital crime. And he says, rejoice, be happy, calm, gentle. And think of the context of the people. You would think, oh, well, he's writing to his Philippian buddies, and they're just like at extended summer camp. No, they are not. They are in the middle of like a hotbed of a mess right now because the Roman culture is absolutely averse to the fact that they would proclaim that Christ is Lord when their fundamental confession and ethos is Caesar is Lord. In fact, they're in Philippi, which is a town that had been settled by several Roman patriots scores of years earlier, and so Roman patriotism is high even though it's not technically in Italy. And so Paul says in Philippians 1.27, he says, look, I know that you've got opponents, and you guys are going to have to band together. The idea was that they had been targeted by their government. We prayed earlier for churches in East Asia. Take that mindset with you to this text. This is what's going on. On top of that, and I'm not saying it's a dumpster fire by any means, but they've got some internal struggles as well. We just saw last week that Euodia and Syntyche, two influential ladies in the church, weren't getting along with one another. Paul had already alluded to that back in chapter 2, that there was some disunity and disrest, I mean, unrest, and I think we all know the tension that can come to a whole church when that is the case. And so they've got internal struggles, they've got external struggles, and it's in that very situation that Paul says, be happy, be gentle, be calm. So let's look at these. Let's look at these dispositions of the Christian. The first one is in verse 4. It is happiness in the Lord. Happiness in the Lord. Please don't forget the prepositional phrase if you're taking notes. (laughs) It isn't just happiness. It is specifically happiness in the Lord. Look again at the verse. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Stop there. Rejoice. Take joy in something again, if I try to give it its literal like translation. But take joy in the Lord. And I, if you're familiar with church, you've been around a while, you've heard this verse preached. I think sometimes that, uh, that guys like myself like, have this tendency to actually say things that could be unhelpful in, by over-defining the word. So um, I, I've made this mistake before where I would say, hey, you need to understand, happiness is based on happenstance. Joy is based on like, the soul in Jesus. As if like happiness and joy are like different things. Listen, friends, I, let's just be fair with the text. This is pleasure language. 
He, Paul could have said, be happy in the Lord. There, there, if, if I say, man, I, I'm joyful or I'm happy, there's, there's, they semantically overlap. I'm saying the same thing. So don't go around like telling people if they say, I'm happy. Well, no, no, do you have joy? <laughs> what they mean is like they feel like good, and that's good. But what we want to be careful about, though, is the object of this where he says, don't just feel good, but feel good in the Lord. Paul has already defined the Lord in this context. The Lord is none other than the Son of God who entered into the human race to take on sin, redeem mankind, rise again, providing eternal life for all who would pledge their allegiance to him in faith. He says, find joy, happiness in the Lord, in your relationship with him. This this is where it's at. The joy is based on Jesus. Some people do indeed think that happiness comes from getting what you desire, and Paul is not arguing that at all. He is totally dispelling the popular myth of happiness or joy. The passage states here that happiness does not come from getting what you deserve, but happiness comes from realizing what you deserve. If you want to talk about what it means to rejoice in the Lord, I would say it's not getting what you deserve. It's realizing what you deserve. When you realize that as one who has rebelled against God, you actually deserved His active and ongoing wrath for your sin, and then you realize that the Lord Himself has remedied that, and you have a relationship with Him, He's like, be happy in that. Take joy in that. One famous theologian from the 19th century said that what Paul does here is he scrawls to the end of every sentence a gigantic nevertheless. My presidential candidate isn't ruling the country right now. Nevertheless, I'm in relationship with Christ. My health isn't nearly what it used to be. Nevertheless, I am in Christ. I have no idea what's going to happen to my retirement in the next four years. Nevertheless, Jesus has forgiven me. Do you see the pattern? It is is happiness in the Lord. And I love how he kind of adds this because it'd be easy to, to read past it. In fact, I'd read past it all week long until just a couple hours ago I was reviewing and I'm like, oh, I totally skipped the next few lines and that was this. And again, I say... Rejoice. (laughs) I mean, he isn't just saying be happy in the Lord, but he actually adds another line. He's like, all right, guys, don't miss this. I know you you would expect me to say it, but I'm going to tell you again, just in case you didn't catch me. Be happy in the Lord and be happy in the Lord. Be kind of like if I was, I left my uh, church key at the house and I told one of the kids to run inside, Gabriel, go in and get the church key, please. Gabriel. Make sure you get the church key. Do you see how like just repeating that twice, you're like, whoa, this must be a really important thing. (laughs) Paul is is not just throwing this out there. In fact, it's this normal paranesis. He normally would just move on. I don't know of another instance in which he repeats a command like this. And yet he does it here because it is so fundamental. It is so important. The disposition should be a happy one. And what is so fascinating is that he says... And just again, look at words on the page. Rejoice in the Lord when always, always. That's what messes us up, friends. 
It's what messes us up. Because as soon as we get the always attached to it, we think, there's no way that he actually expects me to be happy all the time. And we normally kind of go down this trail of trying to figure it out. So we, some people take what I would call a both-and approach. Okay, I know how I can be happy always. I can be, I can be happy <laughs> and sad at the same time. Um, I don't really know how that works. I, I was talking to a friend yesterday trying to figure out like how it could be, how you could be both happy and sad. And the only thing I could come up with was um, the, the prospect of my daughter getting married. Uh, if, if I, you know, like found out about that, you guys have been here in recent weeks, if, like if I found out about that, I, I guess I would be happy and sad at the same time. No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't be happy. And, I would either be really sad, <laughs> and I'd get all the grief out, and then I'd be really happy. No offense, Esai. But that's, that's like, it's not about, I don't know how you're like really happy and sad at the same time. If that's the case, you're kind of, it's a wash. You're neutral, <laughs> But what he's saying is, be happy. So what does he mean by be happy always? Can I just, again, provide some relief? We did this earlier in the book of Philippians, but I think we would do well to review it now. The Scripture uses figurative language too. You know, when I say that my wife is always drinking coffee, I do not mean that she is drinking coffee 24-7, 365. Nobody would assume that of the statement. But you know what you would assume? Wow. She must drink a lot of coffee, if he would say always. <laughs> Ask her, she does. <laughs> when Paul says, rejoice always, he's not saying 24-7, 365. There is no stinking way that's true. There's no way. You better be careful before you start shoving this, this verse down somebody's throat when they're wallowing in genuine grief. I mean, after all, Jesus wept. Paul lamented his kinsmen in Romans 9 to the point that he said he would be willing to be damned for them. He actually just said back in chapter 3 that he speaks of the enemies of the cross with weeping. They weren't tears of joy, friends. I mean, look back at the Old Testament. The prophets were sad. Jeremiah, have you ever read it? It's 50 really depressing chapters. (laughs) Or... The one that's best known to us is the book of Lamentations, written by the same author. Think of the title, Lamentations, Lament. Did you know that over a third of the Psalms are lament? They are crying out in pain and anguish to God. As much as we like to think that the book of Psalms is just happy and joyful, it is real, it is raw, it acknowledges the pain of human existence. And so the question for us is, In light of the fact that we weep, in light of the fact that our Savior wept, in light of the fact that we're called to weep, how then are we always rejoicing? Well, my question would be, what are you normally drinking? (laughs) Is what you take in characterized normally by joy? I'm not asking if you exclusively drink in joy. I'm asking you if you regularly do. Is that more what characterizes you Or is it that of sorrow? See, if we don't acknowledge this, we'll never actually be able to move past the grief that we ourselves do experience. I don't want to play like uh, James Dobson for the moment, but I mean, really, someone dies, a relationship is broken, you lose something that's valuable to you, lament, it's okay. 
The diagnosis won't always go your way. The stock market won't always go your way. And just again, to mention it because of the week, the election won't always go your way. And it is okay for you to be sad and you cry out to God and you release those things to him and you can actually have others weep with you. But listen to this, do not let that characterize your life is what Paul is saying. Be characterized by joy in the Lord. May somebody say that of you. He's just always happy in Jesus. So I'm saying it is okay to cry, but the question is, what are you characterized by? Let me give you a practical question, a way that you can evaluate this for yourself. Do people who know you more often ask, this this is a real question, do people who know you more often ask you, what are you so happy about? Or what are you so sad about? Now, I want you to, to think through the two, to, to the two questions because if somebody comes to you that knows you well and is like, man, you seem to be in a good mood today, you know what that means? It's rare that you're in a good mood. <laughs> they actually expect the opposite of you, and so they want to know what the thing, like what's going on. Now, imagine if they say the opposite. If somebody who knows and loves you well comes to you and says, Man, why are you so down? What's wrong? You know what the assumption is? Normally that you're not down. Normally that something isn't off. Normally that you are okay. And so what Paul is saying here is like, all right, you want to be the kind of person where people would be, it'd be rare for you to be weeping. Not that you never weep, but it is just a rarity. It is not what characterizes you. I think the opposite would be true of people who don't know you. People who don't know you. I mean, like if, if there is like someone who thinks, man, what's that guy so happy about? Because they don't know you, they think, oh, wow, just his natural disposition shines happiness. <laughs> the same thing of sadness. Listen, friends, I, I just want to be clear about this. This is not an option. It is an imperative. But at least it's a joyful one. It's kind of like somebody saying, have fun. Kiss your bride. Receive your degree. I mean, in Christ, we actually have this joyful command to to be happy in Christ. It's not an option. It is an obligation, but what a great one. I mean, for all the people who would say that Puritan, I mean, excuse me, that Puritans and or Christians are some kind of like uh, ongoing cantankerous killjoy, I would look to the real commands of Scripture that are over and over again repeated where one of the main ones is... No, you know what your job is? Be happy. (laughs) Rejoice in Jesus. This is exactly what is commanded of you. I would just give us as a church a couple of of points of interest on this. One would be, we may, we may, I'm not going to demand it, I'm just saying we may need to challenge one another more on this. You know, I, I, I got to admit, I had this tendency as a parent. We did it with all five of our kids. I'm sure you did it too, so you can't judge me. When you've got a baby sitting there and you give him a lemon, it never gets old. They stick it in their mouth and you just see that funny face. Some of you are looking at me judgmentally. You've never tried it. You've got to try it. <laughs> 
But we know that response, like, man, something's off. You see it with the, with the child? I think sometimes we need to call one another out on that, like, dude, what is wrong with you? If we see said disposition regularly, I'm not saying like a one-off, but like regularly on someone, that actually may be worth addressing, pointing out to others in love. No kidding. I've had people do that with me, which is why I could joke around about needing to put a smiley face on my sermon notes. They're like, yeah, you're a really effective guy and everything, but you seem like really unhappy. (laughs) I was so happy for that. I was so happy for that rebuke. I think sometimes we may need to call one another out on this more, but I'm going to say the opposite as well. God, give us wisdom. Sometimes we may need to hold back more. If, if someone is in the pit of despair, if they have lost their job or their child or their, like, well-being physically, be really careful about swinging in there, quoting Philippians 4.4, saying, hey, what's your problem? Pick it up. Rejoice in the Lord. You're a Christian, Right? You're not going to hell, you're going to heaven. That's happy. I know we don't say it that way, but sometimes we, we, we treat it that way. So that's why I say, God, give us the wisdom. We may need to lean in a little more and challenge, but we also need to probably sometimes hold back a little more and provide support. But either way, this disposition of the Christian, happiness in the Lord, it's not an option. It is what we are to be characterized by. There's a second disposition that he lists here, and that is gentleness because of the Lord. Gentleness because of the Lord. Happiness in the Lord, gentleness because of the Lord. Look at verse 5. He says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Now, if you're reading the English Standard Version as is provided in the pews here and as many of our people have uh, I'll just go ahead and acknowledge that the word here in the ESV, I know, I can read, it doesn't say gentleness. <laughs> it says reasonableness. I don't want to bore you, but it is kind of interesting to me that this particular word is literally one of the most debated words in an English translation in like the history of Bible translations. I literally looked at 25 around that, that all had different translations of this particular word. If I just think of the modern translations, for example, um, the Holman Christian Standard is a graciousness, uh, ESV, reasonableness, the New Living Translation, considerate, the, the NASB, gentle spirit, and the NIV is gentleness. Uh, so, we, we have to, like, really try to figure out, like, what's being said. I mean, even in English, I don't know that I've ever used the word reasonableness in a sentence. I don't even know what that means. <laughs> Maybe the ability to reason? <laughs> so, w- before we, like, take on, like, a disposition and say, this is the way that Christians should act, we better be really clear about whatever it is. So, the way that you figure out what, what words mean is, you have to look and see how they're used in other places. That's, that's how lexicons work. That's how 
your favorite Bible teacher was able to impress you with all of the cool things that you like. You know. What they do is they go back and they find that word as it's used in several different other places, and you've you got to just figure out, all right, is there a pattern that develops here? Well, when you go back and see how this world word was used in the classical Greek literature, this would be a few hundred years leading up to this time, other documents of the particular period, maybe how it was used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Uh, I'm not going to bore you with all this because it would take its like own sermon, but this is ultimately where we end up, and I think that increasingly more and more scholars would agree with the very word that I used at the very beginning, gentle. Gentle. Gentle, and this is some of the contrast that may help you, uh, gentle as opposed to harsh. Gentle as opposed to hard. Gentle as opposed to rough. It's interesting that, that Paul gives us a living, a living picture of this with our Lord Jesus. Two different times. If you want to know what it looks like, it's just one thing to talk about the gentleness of an object. But what does gentleness look like in a person? Uh, friends, look no further than Jesus himself. Uh, Paul was enjoining the gentleness that comes from the character of Christ himself when he's uh, actually chastising the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 10.1. And this is what he appeals to them. He says, by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I want you to treat one another in this way or that way. He just assumed that they would know that if you want to know what gentleness is like, you want to know what meekness is like, you look to Jesus. And so we do then look back to Jesus all the way back to Matthew eleven twenty nine, and you will remember this, where Jesus says of himself, the only place in which he tells us his heart, I am gentle and lowly of heart. The only place in the entire scriptures where Jesus describes his heart, what it's like, and we get two words. Gentle and lowly. I know that many of you have probably read that book by Dane Ortland by the same title, Gentle and Lowly. It's popularized last year. I would commend it to you. And the reason why I think it's such a fascinating read is because I think we normally think of Jesus like however we want to think of him. So if we're people with a rough disposition, we look for rough instances in which Jesus was like seemingly harsh, and we're like, yeah, that's Jesus. And then people who are more like people, people, people who are people pleasers, people who are gentle by disposition in some ways, they're like, look at how he acted with the kids. <laughs> look at how he was with the sinners. You know, he almost becomes like the, uh, the old ink block test, you know, like you see there what you want to see. So people are like, yeah, I know what Jesus is really like. Friends, look, I would have a tendency to read my own definition of Jesus into Jesus. You would have yours. And so let's just take Jesus at his own words. This is what he says about himself. You want to know what his heart's like? I am gentle and lowly. And you know what Paul is saying? You and I should be known as the same. Let your gentleness, it says, be known to all men. The primary referent here of all men is that of outsiders especially. 
Normally, Paul will specify if he's trying to target those of the household of faith. So, it certainly would include those of the household of faith, but when he says all, he is actually talking about insiders and outsiders. So, in this particular instance, it reminds me of kind of what he does over in Titus chapter 3, where he tells uh, Titus to remind the Cretans to, notice this, speak evil of no one, verse 2, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy to all people. Like, it kind of gives you an idea of what this gentleness is, right? Uh, To be gentle, to show perfect courtesy, to avoid quarreling. He says, this is the way that you act toward non-Christians. And then he explains, here's why. For we ourselves were once foolish and disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But then God in his goodness and loving kindness appeared in Jesus Christ. He's saying, look, you used to be like this, so be gentle with them. It has been nice to have our friends here with us this weekend, and they have small children, and we were talking about parenting and what it's like when you as a parent keep your children out for longer than you were supposed to. Not longer than they were supposed to be out, longer than you had them out. <laughs> you know, you keep a kid out, like you normally put them to bed at 8 o'clock, and it's 10 o'clock, and you're like, what's his problem? I think parental wisdom would dictate there probably should be a modicum of gentleness there because you're the one that put them in that situation. You remember what it was like to be like that. Gentleness. Not abrasive, not harsh, gentle. That's what he's calling for. He says, let that be what you're known by. Um, One of my favorite reads from the last year, we sell it on that book wall back there, is called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment by Jeremiah Burroughs. Burroughs is a Puritan, one of those guys who Mencken called uh, suspicious of those who would have fun. (laughs) But the Puritans really were joyful people, that they loved the Lord. And the thing I like about Burroughs is he's like the most accessible. He tells lots of stories and gives lots of pictures. And one of the pictures that he gives is that of gentleness and the life of a believer, and he likens it to, this is just, this helped me so much, it sticks with me. He says, you know if, if something is gentle by what happens to it upon impact. You, you know if something is gentle according to what happens to it upon impact. He says, so if it's a hard thing, if it's a hard thing, if it's a if it's not gentle, what happens upon impact? Well, it makes a lot of noise, it, it breaks something or is broken, and it inflicts pain. Anybody ever had that feeling with um, a toe on the corner of a step or a coffee table? A coffee table is not a gentle thing. And several things happen. A lot of noise, a lot of pain. And something gets broken. That's what happens on impact. But what happens when something soft, when something gentle is impacted? It's quiet. It actually softens the noise. It doesn't make more noise. It absorbs the sound. It absorbs the impact. And a soft thing can actually provide comfort. That's why I let my children from time to time do pillow fights and not baseball bat fights. (laughs) 
when you're impacted, you, I'm not talking about your stuff, I'm talking about you, when you're impacted, when you're struck, do you make a lot of noise or are you quiet? Do you absorb impact or does something break? Do you inflict pain or do you lessen pain? That's gentleness. That's what Paul demands. I know the objections because I've made them. I have three. Objection number one. Dude, if we're gentle, we can't ever be effective. Like, what about assertiveness, you know? Like, don't we need to get our name out there? I mean, as one author wrote, tongue-in-cheek, the meek and gentle don't inherit the earth, they get walked on. Right? Like, how do you get a, a, a taxi in New York if you're gentle? How do you get a starting position on the football team if you're gentle? How do you climb the ladder if you're gentle? I hear it. But may I just add, gentleness doesn't mean spinelessness. Gentleness doesn't mean laziness. Gentleness doesn't mean weakness. He's not saying don't be assertive, don't try to do stuff. He's saying when people come into contact with you, are you gentle with them? Objection number two. This is for the men. Because, dudes, we'll be talking on Wednesday night about what it means to be a man according to the Bible, not just our culture. And we'll hit it this coming Wednesday and the next Wednesday. But let me go ahead and give you a preview of something. When I talk about gentleness here, I am not advocating for some form of effeminacy. I'm not saying that you somehow like, have to take on the disposition of a woman. That certainly wasn't our Lord. Somebody would say, man, I don't want to be gentle. That's not manly. Look, manliness doesn't mean that we're brutish and animalistic. There's a reason why, interestingly, if you think culturally, why some people are called gentlemen. <laughs> a gentleman is someone who, who knows how to interact with other people. Gentlemen can still be strong. They can still be assertive. They can still be bold. Uh, please, please forgive uh, the worldly example, but it's the best one I can think of. I know not everyone is James Bond, but even Rambo knew how to treat a lady. I want you to think about that. <laughs> there is a sense in which I know that people's strengths are displayed in different ways. That even cultural icons and heroes know how to accommodate themselves for the right situation the right context, the right people. So I would say that the command here to let your gentleness be known to all men is also similar to the same command that was given earlier, that this is what you need to be known by, even though there may be a time where you've got to get rough. Just as we can't be happy 24-7, 365, there are probably times in which we cannot be gentle. And again, I'm taking a cue from none other 
than our lovely Lord Jesus. He was gentle. He was meek. He was lowly. That was what he was known by. But when he needed to turn it on, when he needed to get rough, he would. And let's be clear, friends, about when he would actually do that. It was only with legalists who were a threat to the gospel. It wasn't with the -the run-of-the-mill sinner struggling to find grace and forgiveness from God. Just notice the way that he handled the woman caught in adultery versus the way that he would constantly excoriate the Pharisees. He knew when not to be gentle, but he was at heart gentle and lowly. So it's not that you're never harsh. There is a time, even in demeanor, to be more firm. And this doesn't mean that you never raise your voice. It, it means that you never raise it out of personal satisfaction or vindication. If, if, if as a man I ever must raise my voice, if I ever must be harsh, it must not be for my own good. It must be for the good of another. It must be for the glory of God. And I say that, by the way, as a man who, doesn't, who hasn't always done that well. That's the dangerous thing about preaching with your kids in the service. They know. And I say it to you. You know that I'm not always raising my voice because of the glory of God and your good. And you forgive me for that. But it is my prayer that I would be known and that this church would be known for this type of disposition. This is what normally comes out. You say, how do we do that? When I'm impacted, how do I do that? How do I respond that way? Well, Paul just gives you a quick little phrase. The Lord is at hand. The Lord is at hand. You want to know how like, you can actually absorb the impact of the culture around you when they are trying to literally beat you down? You remember the Lord, the same Lord that you are in, the same Lord that you share a relationship with is returning. Now, the the term at hand just means near, and we have the same problem in English that they have in Greek. You don't know whether near here means chronologically near or geographically near. So, it's kind of like, you know, I can imagine a scenario where your, your wife is maybe expecting you to be home or your spouse, and you call them and you say, I'm right down the road. Well, right down the road means that you're geographically close, or it could just mean like, oh, I'm right down the road. I'm going to be to you soon. (laughs) What does Paul mean here? I don't know. People have debated. It is one or the other. I would lean toward, because of what he just said in Philippians chapter 3 at the end about the Lord coming back, that he is talking about chronological nearness. Often, that tendency that we have to avenge ourselves is placated by the assurance that Jesus will come and right the wrongs. Just chill. Just hold out. He will make it right. He is near. He is coming. He will fix it. How in the world will we ever be gentle to outsiders, especially who seem to be in these days rubbing it in our face? The Lord is near. The Lord is near. 
I think of the old hymn, though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. He will fix that which is broken. And so we can chill, we can restrain ourselves because we know that the Lord is returning. And so, friends, for whom does this apply in our own lives? Primarily, I want you to get this straight, it does apply to outsiders. Read Titus 3, verses 1 through 7, just for a great reminder. But we're talking about non-Christians, the very ones that get on your nerves. And by the way, you don't get a free pass to not live out this particular disposition just because you're on social media. I know a ton of people who would never be rude to somebody to their face, but they are incendiary online. Did you know you still represent Jesus on the internet just like you do in physical presence? Here's a great little exercise for you. Anytime you're writing something that somebody else is going to read and they can't hear your voice, what you need to assume, this is, this is free, not in the text, but I'm just going to offer some advice. You need to assume that they're in a bad mood and that they're going to read it as if you're yelling at them. And you want to write it in such a way that they can't possibly misunderstand what you're saying, even if you yelled it. And it kind of works the reverse way, too. If you read something, if you want to calm yourself down, assume that they're reading it with the pleasantness of your grandmother's voice. Friends, we've got to be careful. I'm not trying to be all pop culture on you today, but frankly, this is where I see the struggle. I don't know of anybody that got in a fight last week with a non-Christian, but I could imagine some scenarios. Thankfully, I don't look at social media that much anymore, but I could imagine some scenarios where some of you have probably embarrassed yourselves in the name of Jesus and the way that you've interacted with non-Christians. And the text says, no, not what should characterize you. Be gentle. The Lord is at hand. Outsiders. And if it applies to those who are non-Christians, can I just go ahead and take it one step further? Wouldn't it also include those who are in the body of Christ? Insiders. <laughs> Friends, we need this gentleness of, of, of tone and spirit when we reconcile with one another. Um, we're talking about David being considered as an elder. You know, one of the qualifications of an elder is that he is gentle. That's one of the things you look out for. In fact, I'm quoting here from 1 Timothy 3.3. 3, Elders are to not be violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome. It's easy for sometimes churches to think, oh, I know the guy that really needs to be an elder at the church. That's the guy that's like in fierce debates online and like, yeah, he's really like fighting for the truth. Look, yes, of course, you want an elder that would be willing to fight for the truth. But somebody who's always looking for a fight shouldn't be shepherding sheep. I heard one older, wiser pastor say this. He said, Justin, when you're looking for elders in your congregation, look for gentle shepherds, not German shepherds. <laughs> Why is that so important? You know, those elder qualifications are supposed to be an example for the rest of the flock. Elders are to be demonstrating for the flock how they handle conflict with one another, and gentleness should win the day. Friends, family, neighbors, fellow church members, children, whomever should characterize us normally as, again, gentle. So, the dispositions of the Christian, happiness in the Lord, gentleness because of the Lord, and then lastly, calmness. Calmness from 
the Lord. Calmness from the Lord. I, I wish I had more time, but this is an often treated verse, and I want to hit it quickly. You notice that there's two commands here. Verse 6 at the beginning, it says, do not be anxious about anything. The term do not be anxious uh, just comes from a Greek word that literally means uh, a divided mind. Don't have a divided mind. The idea is that of, of a warring inner person. You know what that's like when, you're, when your soul is at war. We call it anxiety. This is the thing that Jesus says over and over again in Matthew chapter 6. Do not be anxious. Do not be anxious. Do not worry. Do not fret. And then we read that and it's like the other ones are like, okay, impossible. <laughs> uh, thanks for that command. I'm going to be a loser this week. Because we feel it. We know what it's like to have this. And so the way that we normally read this verse is, all right, command number one, don't ever worry. Command number two, pray about everything. And it's just, I mean, to live out, it is just discouraging. I mean, what was supposed to be like one of the most encouraging verses in all the Bible all of a sudden becomes one of the most discouraging because you're thinking, man, I worried like 15 times this week and I didn't pray like jack squat, <laughs> Like, what is going on? Like, how do I actually live this out? And I think that the, the key to understanding this is not to see it as two commands, but to see it as one command. Two sides, same coin. And here's why I would say that on the basis of the text. Friends, here's why we believe that every word of the Bible is inspired and not just its idea. It is explicit in the Greek language that there is a rejoice in the Lord always. Excuse me. Do not be anxious about anything. And then notice that, but in everything, with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. It is not and, as if you do this one and you do this one. What it's giving you is an exchange. The, the Greek conjunction, Allah, is actually like it's switching out something for you. It's not saying, all right, here's another thing. There's a word for that. It's called and. But when you're doing a replacement, you use the word but. And so what he's saying is when you feel the inevitable pressures in, internally, when, when your soul is at war with itself, instead of letting it persist, give it to the Lord in prayer and petition and with thanksgiving. You're switching it out. It isn't, no, I'm never going to worry, and yes, I'm always going to pray. It's, no, I'm going to take the pressure that inevitably comes and then release it to the Lord in prayer. You know the other negative thing about interpreting that as an and instead of a but, treating it as two commands instead of one command with two sides, is that you get to the second half of it that says, pray about everything, and you're thinking, man, I don't ever pray. <laughs> I can't ever pray enough. And so we end up doing what I said a few weeks ago, looking at our clocks, wondering like, okay, well, I, I guess I need to be praying more. But you know what? When you start taking the pressures that come upon you and releasing them to God, you can't help but pray. Can't help it. I used to like be amazed when Martin Luther would say, um, too much to do, too much to do. Today I'm going to have to pray for four hours. <laughs> And I'm like, man, what is, what is he up to? You know, like, how does somebody pray four hours? You know why? Because he felt four hours worth of pressure from the inside that he needed to release to God Almighty. You, you want your prayer life to flourish? Just go ahead and take your worry list, and I'm quoting Swindoll here, and turn it to a prayer list. 
Take your worry list and turn it to a prayer list. Every time you feel the pressure building up, release it to God. Ask him for his help. Ask him to intervene. And don't forget that little prepositional phrase with thanksgiving. And thank him for what he is doing in that very moment. And you know what the result of this is? This is stunningly beautiful. It says, and the peace of God, that is, the peace that comes from God. God Almighty, who is always at peace. He is always at rest. God is never sitting up in heaven, wringing his hands, wondering how everything is going to turn out. He is calm, and he sends his calmness to you, and you know what it does? The text says, it will protect your heart and your mind. Everything internally that you think would tear you to pieces, God's peace will descend. And I love how it says, will guard. It is the same term that is used of a Roman army occupying a city to ensure, listen to this, it's peace and safety. There is a military presence ensuring that nothing will go wrong. There is a divine presence that will ensure that nothing will ultimately go wrong for those who are taking the pressures and turning them into prayer. So you could be sitting in prison or dealing with church conflict or actually having people persecute you from the outside or like actually enduring some of the most trying physical or financial or emotional times of your life. And he's saying, as long as you're continually releasing them to the Lord in prayer, you can have peace. And you should have it. It should mark you. You should be characterized by it. This is the disposition of the Christian. People always will quote things like, well, Paul, Paul had anxiety. Paul had anxiety for the churches. He even says that. I have anxiety for all the churches. Yes, he did. And you know what he did with it? He released it to the Lord in prayer. Somebody said that, that, that this type of anxiety, this, this pressure is something like an alarm clock. It, 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 can, it can move you along. It can wake you up to something. But what do we do with our alarm clocks? We turn them off. We get moving and we turn them off. To carry around the alarm clock all day long is to invite undue stress. Just turn it off. Release the pressure. (laughs) I've got to do it. To quote the popular Disney movie, let it go. (laughs) For real. Luther said it this way, pray and let God worry. I read the story this week of, you know, these guys, and I'm a horrible bowler, by the way. I can do like a consistent 90 or 100. But you know what it's like to like release that thing. And then you see those people after they've let it go, they're like, get it. They do all, they contort their body all kinds of ways thinking that they're going to do something to affect that. And you know what Paul said? Let it go. Walk away. Pray. Let God worry. And guess what? You say, I, I, I prayed. I, let it, I, I tried to let it go to God and I felt it again. You know what you do? You pray again. Every time it comes back, you let it go again and you walk away. And you move on. Because we are called to be calm. You know the old hymn, oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not what? Take it to the Lord. 
Friends, I have a vision, not in a charismatic sense, but a, a desire. I envision this church, my own heart, living this out in ways that are commensurate with this text. And if I were to leave it in, in, just like, in a way that I think you would be able to visualize it as well, I, I would just leave you with a tale of two songs. <laughs> a tale of two songs. The, the first song is, is none other than the, that popular 1988 classic, a cappella, Don't Worry, Be Happy. McFerrin just tells us, hey, everything's cool. Just don't worry. Just be happy. He gives no reason why. He just says, don't worry, be happy. And I would contrast that with the timeless hymn penned by Horatio Spafford, and I'm not going to get into the details of it, but in one of the most disturbing seasons of his life, lost his business, lost his children, thereby writes the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. It's a tale of two songs. In the first, what you have is a bunch of people trying to be happy and gentle and calm, but there's no Christ. There's no Christ. I have no idea how somebody could actually sing as a life mantra, don't worry, be happy, when they look around and see what's happening in our world in these days. Get your head out of the sand. Like, really? Don't worry. Be happy. People are starving. People are dying. Injustice abounds in the world. I mean, like, I'm not trying to ruin the song. It has its moments. It has its times. But that is not what this text is describing. What it is describing is what Spafford would pin himself where he talks about waves of sorrow washing over him, and yet even then it is well with my soul. Spafford is adjoining us to be happy, be gentle, be calm in Christ. Let me tell you what matters more than anything as we bring this thing to a close. Our you in Christ? Can you actually say that you enjoy Him, that you benefit not only now but for eternity from what He did for you through His life and death and resurrection? Have you repented of your self-rule and relied on Jesus alone? Because if you have, you can. You can. Not only, no, no, no. Not only you can, you should. You must be happy, be gentle, and be calm. This is the disposition of the Christian. Let me pray. Father, mark us in these ways. Or may your Spirit produce this fruit in us. Or may we say in hard times and difficult times, even though there could be acute and temporary sorrow or pressure, 
that overall it is well, things are good because of Christ and what He's done. Teach us to find joy in Jesus, please. Do this in me. Do this in us. And Father, I would not be so foolish as to think that everyone in this room today knows what that means, that everyone in this room knows how to find that kind of joy and satisfaction in Him. And so I pray that they would see the beauty and the power and the grace that is offered only in Jesus, that they would see their sin and their rebellion, and they would hate it, and that they would humbly trust in Christ so that they too could be marked by said dispositions. Do this in us. We pray this day. In Jesus' name, amen.